there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Time has come. You've seen the map. We've looked at the figures, and NBC News now makes its projection for the presidency. Reagan is our projected winner. Ronald Wilson Reagan of California, a sports announcer, a film actor, a governor of California, is our projected winner at 8.15 Eastern standard time on this election night. Ronald Reagan defeated incumbent President Jimmy Carter in the general election by a landslide. Iraq President Saddam Hussein declared holy war against Iran. John Lennon's eagerly awaited double fantasy album arrived in stores and Dallas finally answered the question of who shot JR with 83 million people watching. It was you, Kristen, who shot JR. You think you've got it all figured out. Get me the police. I wouldn't do that if I were you, JR. Not unless you want your child born in prison. Now, wouldn't that be a scandal? Jock Ewing's grandson. Jail baby. And yet, some of them also found time to see some of the movies released in November of 1980. Hi, everybody, and welcome to 80s All Over. My name is Scott Weinberg. I'm the co-host along with dot, dot, dot. So suspenseful. It could be anybody. It's Drew McQueenie. Drew McQueenie. Holy crap. That's me from the Internet. Hey, what's up, man? How are you, dude? It's very good to hear from you. Some months we get a whole bunch of movies and then some months by the law of just calendars, (laughs) our months are a little bit skimpy. And I hate to say it, but November of 1980 is a relatively skimpy month. And yet, having said that. A really interesting month, and um, this is one of those where, you know, we're just going to jump right in. I'm going to kick it off with the first film, which is the movie where I learned, I believe, that documentaries are awesome. I'm talking, of course, about Errol Morris's Landmark, uh, originally made in 1978, theatrically released in 1980, Gates of Heaven. Sometimes the people like to come up and see the act, witness the actual burial of the animal. Sometimes they don't, and uh, we... we pick out a date that's convenient for them and they come up and as far as preparation uh, a hole has to be dug prepared um, it has to yet we have to make sure that that the hole is going to fit the size of the casket because you don't want to make it too large because you're going to waste space and you don't want to make it too small because you can't get the thing in there any subject in the right hands can be interesting you could make a documentary about how paper or paper clips or Anything is made. And if you have a filmmaker who is fascinated by that topic, 
that documentary will probably be good. And Gates of Heaven is about pet cemeteries. Infamous even before it came out, because there was a, uh, a bet, a longstanding bet between Werner Herzog and Errol Morris that Errol Morris would never finish this movie. And Werner Herzog promised to eat his shoe if Errol Morris ever did it. Not only did Errol Morris finish the film, not only did Werner Herzog eat his shoe, but Errol Morris actually filmed it and released that as a short film called, shockingly, Werner Herzog Errol, eats, his shoe. eats His Shoe. He boiled it. Yes, he did. Aside from, you know, the the typical poignancy of just seeing people do something that they love passionately, even in the face of it being a potentially a pointless act. Maybe the result isn't all that matters. Maybe just the act of doing certain things is what's important. One of the things that I love about uh, Errol Morris movies, and especially the early ones, this Vernon, Florida, he, there was a real sense that the people he was putting on camera in the hands of somebody who was cruel could have been made to look stupid or ridiculous or small or absolutely. I never feel like when I'm watching uh, Vernon, Florida, which I adore. I love, love, love that movie or this one. I never feel like he's laughing at anybody, even when they are people who are talking about things that might be considered. Oh, yeah. Fringe or ridiculous. I get from Errol Morris and Werner Herzog and, and people like that. I get fascinated doesn't matter how small the subject is, I get from these filmmakers that they are fascinated by this minutia that makes us human. These these weird little foibles and strange little quirks that make us human are what's fascinating to these people and that they are able to uh, impart that fascination to people through their films is why we remember films like Gates of Heaven so amazingly. And we, of course, we can't even talk about this film for a second without noting the late, great Roger Ebert who championed this film endlessly. That was the reason that when it finally came out, I actually went and saw it was he had put it on his best of the year list the year that it was, I think, in festival circulation and had written about it endlessly and had talked about it endlessly. And it was on his top 10 list. And it was a movie that he could not say enough good things about. So by the time it finally came out, it was on my radar. I was already a Siskel and Ebert fan and I wanted to go see it. And I'd never seen anything like it. I'd never seen a documentary, really. I don't think theatrically, but I certainly had never seen anything that offered up this look at people who I might otherwise never meet or talk to or have any reason to right, share or anything even, with. Even think about like, oh yeah, the people who um, spend their time, money, and effort to uh, maintain pet cemeteries. Like, when do you even think about those kind of people? And yet, you have filmmakers who will center their entire feature around those people. And, you know, it, it could be any activity, whatever activity it is. Someone else is, might consider that activity silly or pointless, but if it makes you happy and you get something from it, then it's valuable. The the movie sets up these two totally different pet cemeteries, and you're watching success and failure in America. You're watching somebody who manages a business well that's that's thriving and somebody who doesn't, but who has a passion for it that they cannot translate into money. It's one thing when you fuck up your dream and you don't succeed at something. It's another thing when your dream involves the final disposal of something like 500 pets that when you go bankrupt, you have to do something with them. You are now responsible to the owners, the people who put their emotional security in your hands. You now are responsible for the final resting place of these animals and no longer able to pay for it. And the whole half of the film that deals with the idea of having to dig up and move the remains of these pets and what it does emotionally to a community of people, it, that's fascinating by itself. 
it's like a rich American novel. There is so much going on and there are so many levels to it. And every character introduces you into this whole other world that kind of intersects. And oh, my God, it's a, such a great movie. You could call it just if you want, you could call it a human interest story. But it's if it's a human interest story, it's written by like Hemingway. So <laughs> great. Yep. So great. Uh, our next film is not quite so wonderful. <laughs> it is uh, from the infamous uh, Polish director uh, Uli Lamel, who has done several terrible films. And it, I think it's safe to say that his best film, relatively speaking, is 1980s The Boogeyman. When you were growing up, The Boogeyman was just a fantasy. It had its own power. The Boogeyman is. He's here, now. By the time they believe in him, it will be too late. The Boogeyman, rated R. It's funny because for for me, horror films, first of all, do they work? Are they scary? The answer is no, not scary. Um, but then it's then it's you remember it based on how does it like what subgenre what section of horror is it and that's kind of how you group it and this is part of that very very small but a genuine subsection of horror films about haunted mirrors and it is it is one of those movies where i remember the hook and the idea more than any scare in the film i've made the mistake of trying to rewatch it once and it is rough man however if you remember jane pratt the editor of sassy uh, she was a huge media figure in a lot of the uh, the nineties. I spent most of the nineties really wasted, so I'm. She she's in this as one of the uh, the teenage victims, and it's just one of those things where somebody who has this whole other life has one film role, and okay, what a weird ass film role that is. A young, a man is killed while having sex with a woman and her kids are watching and the murder is captured in a mirror. Uh, and then 20 years later, the daughter reacquires the mirror and you know, it has its moments. It's very basic and it's completely forgettable. I, I wouldn't recommend it, but you know, if you're a, a 1980s completist, it, it was a VHS of some note. And, and if you haven't seen the original boogeyman, then you can't play the wonderful game of watching Boogeyman 2, which came out a few years later, and is, I would say, charitably 65% footage from the first film. <laughs> there again, you want to talk about sub subgenres of horror, that's like The Hills Have Eyes 2, where every single character from the original film gets a flashback so that they can pad the movie out with footage, including the dog. Yeah, the dog has a flashback. Yeah, it's the that's, best. The best. It is infamous. So yeah, the Boogeyman, not, not so hot. <laughs> Let's move on. Drew, you got something that is a, a, a psychosexual thriller, but something of a much more refined nature. Uh, arguably. Um, <laughs> this is a movie that um, pretty much had no official release in the United States uh, for home video until 2005. Uh, it is, it's a film that um, was very, very hard to find for a long time. And yet when it finally came out, it came out through Criterion. Like it was, it immediately got launched into cult item status and Nicholas Rogue, like, like many art house directors and like many guys who, who worked in the sixties and the seventies and the eighties, uh, really uneven filmmaker. There's moments of Nicholas Rogue's work where I think he's great. And there's moments of Nicholas Rogue's work where I, I think he is 
insufferable. Now, I, want I can't to... remember the time with any precision. But I'm not asking you for the precise time. So could it have been half past 12, perhaps? 10, 11, midnight? No. It's just that I can't stand to think of you with anyone else. Tell me! We're alone here, no witnesses. When I'm with you, I'm with you. I love being with you. Well, what does that mean, with me, not with me? Confess between us. Tell me what you dare not. Don't ever use that word love again, and I promise I won't. Bad timing, a terrifying love story. First of all, let me just say about the title, that is one of the sickest punchlines to a joke. And the whole movie is the joke, and that title is the punchline, and it's a really grim one. It is like if Eli Roth had actually called Knock Knock Free Pizza, which was one of the titles, where that suddenly gets really sinister. And it's not ha-ha funny. It's like, oh, God, Jesus Christ. Last month, we covered a film called One Trick Pony, uh, in which Paul Simon was the star. And now in bad timing, Drew, who do we have in this one? Well, we got Art Garfunkel. And um, it's Art Garfunkel. It's Teresa Russell, Charvy Keitel. And the movie is about a, a doctor who's living in Vienna. And he has an affair with a patient who's a married woman. Uh, she tries to kill herself and she ends up in the hospital with an overdose. The police aren't sure that the overdose was her. And so it becomes a an investigation into their relationship to try to untangle what went on. And it is, I'm not kidding, a brutally ugly ending to a movie. When the ending of this gets here and they untangle everything and because uh, Nick Rogue breaks the the chronology of the film, so you're getting bits and pieces, and you're not given all the information until the right moment. It's an ugly, ugly, breathtakingly nasty place that it ends up, and it's hard to watch. Legitimately hard to watch. I don't think it's in. I, I don't think it's a totally successful film. The distributor, the UK distributor, when the film was initially shown to them, not only balked at releasing it, they took their name off of it, and the head of the distribution company called it a a sick film made by sick people for sick people, which then became an advertising linchpin for them. Like They decided, great, well, if the head of the company that made it called it that, we're going to call it that on the poster. And it's one of the reasons the film has always been controversial is because I think genuinely it's unsettling, and there's stuff in it that will upset you and was designed to. Do I think it earns all of that? Not necessarily, but I think it is Rogue and Teresa Russell and Art Garfunkel giving it 100% and trying to make something that's going to push and challenge you and be difficult to shake at the end of it. Bad timing, of which uh, I'm loath to say I have not seen, and now it seems like I don't really care to. You might like it, but it's rough. It, It is not an easy film to make it through. Speaking of films that nobody has seen, <laughs> our next one shares the title with a Gregory Hines, Billy Crystal comedy that we'll get to in a few uh, years. And it also shares a title with a over the top Paul Walker action adventure movie called Running Scared. Now, for those who've never heard of this blockbuster classic stars Ken Wall and Judge Reinhold as servicemen in the 60s who are mistaken for spies. Talk about a movie that is built around a black hole of charisma. Have you seen Running Scared, a.k.a. Desperate Men? That's what I saw it as, and I saw it way back. It must have been late 80s when I saw it. I saw it one time, and I saw it because of Judge Reinhold. You know, it's a throwback movie. It's set in the early 60s, and this is right at that moment where the baby boomers were starting to canonize themselves. And one of the things that you'll learn about me is this 
decade wears on is that I have very little patience at this point with 60s nostalgia. Uh, I have had it jammed down my throat by the baby boomers for as long as I've been alive to the point where I feel like I was alive in the 60s. Kind of unfair considering that you and I host a podcast that is a celebration of 80s films and 80s nostalgia. But we're being clear eyed about it. The 60s nostalgia was all designed to sell us the idea that the baby boomers and the hippies were the greatest people who had ever lived and that they stopped everything bad and everything good was the way the world was going to be. From now oh, on. no, no, no. I never said no, our generation is shitbags. I know that. Yeah. But th- there was clearly the idea that, hey, we, we stood up in the 60s. We fought the bad guys. We won. The world's better now. And I think that was that was this this blind nostalgia that, that looked back and really had the opinion. Not only did we change the world, but we fixed it and it's all good now. And this is one of those early examples of somebody trying to peddle sort of this look back at uh, the Bay of Pigs era and guys in the army living in Florida in the early 60s. It's not memorable. It's not good. And I don't think it does a particularly decent job of evoking the era, which is if you're going to do a movie like that, you better make me feel like there's something that you're offering me about that era that is honest and clear eyed and real. I have nothing to add. (laughs) Why don't we move on from an obscure film that we both that that I assume is terrible to a, a, a slightly less obscure film. That I know is terrible. <laughs> Menachem um, Golan's. We know Menachem Golan is is half of Canon Films. Golan Globus were responsible for dozens and dozens of '80s junk piles, some of which we absolutely love. Uh, but this was Menachem Golan's directorial debut, I believe. Oh no, nope. Uh, he had been directing for a while. I, you know, I'm glad we're doing this finally because we are now going to start to get into Golan and Globus. A couple of people have said to us that they were surprised we had not said those names yet on this podcast, that we had not brought up Golan and Globus yet. Well, it's still too early. Like the, the 1980 is about when Golan and Globus started to break on the international scene. And even so, it's not like the Apple was a hit. This is not a film that suddenly broke them through and made them giant established hits around the world. But yes, we are talking about the, the, the Apple. Apple. Well, what's great about it is it's clearly a biblical allegory, but it's like they've never read the Bible. Like somebody just told them the story of the Bible and got a lot of this shit wrong. It's an adaptation of a book they've never read, but heard told about. Wow. And and as a metaphor, as an allegory, um, nope, doesn't connect. Sorry. Um, it is really weirdly what, built. What must be fascinating to our younger listeners and young and younger movie geeks in general is like, okay, you see a lot of dramas and dramas and comedies and thrillers from the eighties. And as a smart young person, you think, all right, that those clothes are a little dated and they didn't, they don't really shoot the way they shoot now. And you can accept all those things as like products of the era. But what must an 18 year old movie geek think? When they see Zardoz or the Apple or Xanadu, like what must they think? 
Menachem Golan, he had directed movies through the 60s and the 70s. And when you look at the, those movies, they are imitating Hollywood shapes. They are imitating Hollywood form, but they are very clearly local movies. They are Israeli films and Egyptian films, and they are made in a certain time and a place. And you can tell that he's watching from a distance. He's watching this stuff and he's thinking, I could do that. I want to do that. I want to make my country feel the way I feel about Hollywood movies. I want to make that for me. And then the the jump that they made was, okay, we got to make international movies that everyone will go see. So that's what the Apple feels like is we're going to make this movie. The Bible is, you know, it's a story everybody knows. We're going to do this allegory. Rock music is huge. Isn't it weird that so many of these movie rock musicals are an indictment of the music industry? Clearly, this is personal. Like, I don't think this is phoned in. I don't. And that's one of the reasons that. You know, there's an entire industry of people that talk about movies and terrible movies, and I think there are good and bad examples of that. I love Mystery Science Theater 3000. I love How Did This Get Made? Agreed on both because they're both astute observers of film that respect the efforts of even those who made bad films. Mystery Science Theater and How Did This Get Made still respect the creators. They might they might laugh at the end product and point out mistakes that we can all plainly see, but there's still respect. Right. And and I think with the Apple, because uh, I, I know How Did This Get Made did a big episode about it. And I think with the Apple, what you're seeing is a really personal film. Somebody who is trying very hard to communicate the idea that I think the world is valuing the wrong things. And I think that we are sold gloss and I think that we buy the garbage. And I think if you slap the, the corporate name on garbage, we all buy it and we're giving ourselves over to it. And we're not paying attention to honesty and sincerity and art. And that's what's most important. Light my way, child of love. Light my way, child of love. Shine on me, child of love. Shine on me, child of love. Be my eyes, child of love. Be my eyes, child of love. Help me see, child of love. Help me see, child of love. A lot of this movie is overwrought and sloppily made and cornball, but I, I would agree. I, I think that it was made from a, a place of sincerity. I, so I all of that is in there. Having said that, holy shit, there is a song in this. I think the funniest song in the film. Uh, there's a great one that's just called The Apple that is performed by a guy who clearly was cast because from the right angle, he kind of looks like Roger Daltrey had too many sandwiches. He works his ass off to try and and sell that. Can't sing, can't dance, can't move. Awful. But somehow that's not the worst song in the film. The worst song in the film, or the most awesome song, depending on your point of view, is called I'm Coming. And Two Live Crew is more subtle than this. It is literally, I'm coming, I'm coming, I can't believe I'm coming, I'm about to come, I'm coming, oh shit, I came, I'm coming again. It's non-stop, it's, it's single entendre, and it, it is magnificent. We should be happy that the adorable and talented Catherine Mary Stewart managed to survive this and go on to a, a solid uh, movie and TV career. Well, and she can sing like clearly the the stuff and so can the male lead. The the guy who, you know, is kind of a vague, lumpy Australian pretty boy. Yeah, he can sing. It's not it's not that he's a terrible performer. It's that the songs that they wrote for them are batshit crazy. And there is, and, if I'm not mistaken, the bad guy from Lethal Weapon 2 also in the film. 
Joss Ackland, yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, I think he's the hippie with the fake nose, which is so fake and so strangely fake that you keep wondering, is it going to blow up? Is it going to do an effect? Is there some reason? It's a failed project. I mean, like, you know, it's like (laughs) it's like you look at like, let's try and build a treehouse and the roof is broken and there's rusty nails and it's a mess. But you look at it and go, well, they, they really did try to make a decent treehouse. They, they, they tried. And, and if you want to you know, see a biblical allegory go off the tracks, watch the third act of this film where they lose such control of what they're doing that by the time God shows up in a station wagon, it's turned into a sci-fi sequel to the Bible. For those who would like, like fun bad, like your jaw will open and you'll be like, what am I looking at? In, in both a this is bad and a I'm fascinated by it kind of way. Uh, the Apple is definitely worth checking out, and it's, it does have a cult following. There are people out there who both like it both ironically, and there are people who like it sincerely. I definitely think it's your, worth your time, and we'll be talking about Golan and Globus at length over the course of this podcast. One of the reasons I'm glad we did this one first is because this is one of the movies that if you're going to understand who they are, and you don't just want to say schlock, and you don't just want to say, oh, and they made Charles Bronson movies that they pre-financed at Cannes. If you want to look deeper and see who they really were, this is who they were. There is genuine personality in this terrible, terrible movie. And now we're moving on to a film called The Idolmaker. You got it, Tommy. I saw it in there. Do you know something? With the right handling, you can go all the way. He'll teach you how to move. All we got to do is loosen it up bring the talent up to match your face how to smile they want prince charming you know somebody cute and safe how to sing i just want to take you where i'm going he'll tell you when to think i told you i wanted movies for tommy not television you got that when to talk from now on you don't go nowhere you don't leave this house you don't do nothing when to love one of your star reporters was having an affair with one of the idols and if you're lucky if you last, he'll make you a star. I can make it happen for you, kid. He's the Idol Maker, starring Ray Sharkey, Tova Felcher, Peter Gallagher, and Paul Land. I'm not the biggest Ray Sharkey fan, and, I, and part of <laughs> part of that is personal. I uh, I think this is the thing: you work in Los Angeles long enough, you hear stories, you you get to know people, people talk about other people. Sharkey was a guy who was he was basically John Belushi's watcher. He was at a certain point in Belushi's devolution as he was falling apart. Sharky was the guy that was supposed to kind of keep him on the rails. And the problem was that Sharky was a degenerate. And so I, I have always resented on some level that Ray Sharky was there as the wheels came off. Why do you think that uh, Ray Sharky never, I mean, he's a lead in this film, a big, a successful uh, uh, Hollywood film to a degree. Why do you think he never parlayed it into a, a, uh, a bigger career? I, I think he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way in the industry. And it's one of those things where you do look at this performance and it should have launched him I- into being he huge. Is really quite good. He's really charismatic in it. And I'm not going to take that away from him. I just wanted to say I have a, a reaction to Ray Sharkey, let's say. Now, having said that, Taylor Hackford, who directed this movie, um, I think does a terrific job of making the 50s, the late 50s payola era, interesting in a way that a lot of people had already stopped doing by this point in 1980 because the 50s had been strip mined you know i talk about how the 60s i got tired of them well the 50s had already been through that and they'd already been strip mined to death and yet somehow i think taylor hackford really made the the sound of the 50s and the look of the 50s come alive in a way that was very vital and uh, had a real heartbeat to it 
the guy that this is based on, the real guy, was sort of a coach on the film. And the whole point is that he is a guy who managed pop stars, whether it be Frankie Avalon or guys like that, and and would shape them and give them what they were supposed to do on stage and help them become stars the way Sharky plays it. This is a guy who could have been that guy. Like, clearly, he understands it all, and he understands the charisma that's necessary and the moves that are necessary, yet there is something about him that keeps him behind the scenes, pushing other people forward and shaping them in his own image. I saw this many years ago, not as a kid, but I remember considering it, like, buried treasure in some way. Like, it's surprisingly engaging for a basic enough uh, fictionalized biopic. It's pretty well made. I enjoyed it. Yeah, and it's a pretty early uh, performance from Joey Pants, and he's good in it. And I, you know, I think for a lot of people, it it served as a early milestone, showing that they were people really worth paying attention to. And I, I think the guys who got to pop out of this and who continue to grow out of this, there's there's a reason for that, which is you know Hackford is one of those directors who, when he worked with actors, I think he made actors better. I think he he was that kind of director where he would not only make them look good in their film, but he would give them stuff that they would take with them and look good in other people's movies as a result. Uh, Taylor Hackford was a, a, we'll, we'll, we'll get to him several more times in the eighties, a journeyman director, very talented. And this Uh, was an early landmark for him. If it crosses your path and you feel like you'd want to see it, I think it is very rewarding. I think there's a lot about it that, that definitely stands up and is worth tracking down. Drew, why don't you now introduce our listeners to what I call my first Kurosawa. This next film is a great example. When when I talk to film snobs who get really shitty about Star Wars and about what Star Wars has done to film culture and about the long shadow of Star Wars now, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas ruin movies. All right. Well, maybe. Maybe you feel that way, and, and that's fine. You can feel that way if you'd like to. But in 1980, Akira Kurosawa couldn't get arrested. His last film was five years earlier. It was financed by Soviet Union money, Dursu Uzala, and even then barely made it to production. Uh, and he spent five years making a film in his head. He just went away and started drawing and painting and writing and realized, I'm never making a movie again. I'm almost 70. Nobody's ever going to give me money. I'm unbankable in Japan. And there was a point where that was true, where Kurosawa, one of the great film artists ever, just couldn't get anything made, just couldn't push it up the hill. And this one in particular was one that he had resigned himself to not making. And he happened to meet George Lucas. There was a big conversation about it. He showed him all the art. He showed him the script. And Lucas turned around and essentially with Francis Ford Coppola having his back said, all right, well, here's what's going to happen. Toho, you're going to pay for the movie. And Toho was like, no, we're not. And they go, well, I'm the guy that made Star Wars. So, yeah, they are. And they went, "Okay, you made Star Wars. You're right. Uh, Yes. And then he went to 20th Century Fox and said, you're going to buy it and release it in America. And they went, no, we're not. And he said, well, I just made you Star Wars and I'm making you Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, you will. And they did. It is genuinely, it only exists as a movie because George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola took the clout that they had accumulated from their hits and said, make this man's film, period. A new film by Akira Kurosawa, director of two Academy Award winners, Kagemusha, The Shadow Warrior. I, growing up, I had a next-door neighbor who I think was maybe four or five years older than me. And all the quote-unquote bad influence stuff that I ever learned 
be it heavy metal magazine or Chinese throwing stars or a sip of beer, all the bad influences I ever got, including samurai films, came from my next door neighbor, Eric. And Eric sounds awesome, by the way. Just saying, Eric sounds awesome. When I was 12, he was 16. So to me, I looked at him like he's the coolest older kid ever. Oh, my God. He can, you know, you know, his girls and he can stay out past 10. And oh, my God. You know, he was the coolest. He had all the he knew he had good taste in video games and everything. He was a cool kid. He played Kagamusha for me one afternoon and I was entranced. I was absolutely I don't even think I even paid attention to the uh, subtitles after a while. I just couldn't get enough of it. It was absolutely beautiful. And the ironic thing is the same year, or it was probably 81 or 82 that I saw this. And he also showed me the film we're going to cover next. (laughs) Okay, quick summary of the the storyline. There was a thief who was about to be hanged, and the brother of the uh, samurai warlord realized that the thief, with a little bit of work, looks exactly like the warlord. So he is recruited to be the warlord's double, his Kagamusha, which is Shadow Warrior. And his the entire thing is that he's going to stand in when the samurai warlord needs to slip away so no one knows he's missing. And then he dies. And the double then has to live as the samurai warlord and actually begins to do it very well. It's not a case of, well, I don't know what I'm doing or I'm in over my head. It's a case of, no, this guy actually does it for a while and things get better and things are good. And then as things unravel, it becomes a family drama. It becomes a a samurai epic. There are giant action scenes towards the end. It is beautiful and haunting and features a dual performance from the amazing Tatsuya Nakati. And, when you see the film, the opening scene of the movie, it's the warlord, his brother, and the thief, and they're sitting together, and it's a scope frame. Two of the people in the scope frame are the same actor. There's no tip of the hand as to what they're doing. There's no uh, notion that you're watching a trick. It's just that you you gradually, as you're looking at them, start to realize just how close they look, and yet they are different enough that you buy. They're different people. It is a remarkable performance. I think it's a great Kurosawa film. I think it's beautiful. And uh, and it is one of those things where I think it revitalized him. I think if he had not made this movie, I don't know that he would have continued to make movies. I don't know if Ron would exist. I don't know if he would have gone on to other work. So I'm really glad this happened when it did. And I think that on the larger sort of canvas of Kurosawa's career, I, I don't think it's his best film. It's You know what? It is a good... It's it's one of his more accessible films for a younger audience or an audience that's newer to Japanese films. I think it's one of his uh, easier entry points. This Oran would be good entry points if you want to get into Kurosawa and then move and then move forwards and backwards. And God, it's beautiful. It really is. It's it is something else, man. And, you know, it's one of those movies that you, you look at and you realize that there are. There are artists who every single time they worked, their voice was crystal clear, and Kurosawa was one of them. Similar in some ways, although not nearly as uh, poetic or lyrical, is a ass-kicking, how, how would you call this, cobbled together from two episodes of the Lone Wolf and Cub series. It's a, it's a Frankenstein movie. Yeah, it's a Frankenstein movie, but it, it still is amazingly cool. It is known as Shogun Assassin. Return to the vanished kingdoms of ancient times. Journey through a lost empire of mad wizards, 
barbaric passions. Behold the saga of a legendary warrior, a loving father who has the power of a dozen armies in one sweep of his mystic blade. This is a story of honor, disgrace, vengeance, massacre, and a man who became a demon, Shogun Assassin. If you don't know this movie, here's how you do know it. You know it from the end of Kill Bill Volume 2. Even if you've never seen it, it's the movie that BB and her mom watch when they're finally together in Kill Bill that is so insanely crazy violent and makes BB laugh. That's the movie. Uh, Lone Wolf and Cub, uh, to those who don't know, is the Baby Cart series, which is about a, a disgraced samurai and his baby son who travel across the countryside from village to village, stay helping people and avoiding terrible people and do, killing them in, in graphic sh- fashion. Uh, and somebody decided to uh, combine two of them together and uh, release it overseas, uh, everywhere else. And I saw this before I knew anything about Lone Wolf and Cub, uh, again, at my next-door neighbor Eric's house. And if you had asked me when I was 12 or 13, I would have said Shogun Assassin is better than Kagamusha <laughs> because it is <laughs> it is manic. It is so much blood spray and carnage and oh, wonderful. Oh, so violent. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, this was <laughs> in 1980. When, you know, uh, okay, some uh, blood coming out of a cut neck in in Friday the 13th was a big deal. So to see stuff of this graphic level, uh, and and as an adult you watch it and you realize that it has a sense of humor to it, but as a kid you don't necessarily realize that this is kind of halfway tongue-in-cheek. All you see is nonstop carnage and geysers of blood and mayhem, and it's orchestrated so beautifully, uh, it's it's just a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Six movies in the series, and this is the first two, basically. It's like a chunk of the first one as the setup, and then most of the second movie. And by this point, they were almost a decade old, I think, and and were movies that had been kicking around for a while. On one hand, you're like, God, what a cynical way to treat you know art. And on the other hand, it's like, yeah, but Shogun Assassin introduced a lot of people to this series who otherwise would not have heard of it. As weird as it is, the baby cart films were treated more as art house releases because they were, you know, full Japanese releases and they were subtitled and they were treated that way. Whereas this was New World Pictures put it out and because they recut it and they dubbed it and they treated it the way they did, it played more like typical grindhouse down the middle drive in movie. And it's also I think it benefits from the fact that by cutting two films together, it's the good stuff and it's lots and lots of the good stuff. And of course, that whole series is great. Uh, but, you know, either either to start off or to finish your Lone Wolf and Cub Marathon, definitely check out Shogun Assassin. It's it's good stuff. It is, a, it is a lot of fun. And yes, it is catastrophically violent. Now, speaking of catastrophes, we close out November of 1980 with a film that is both famous and infamous, pretty much destroyed a studio, virtually ruined the director's career and is still debated among film scholars and film fans today. Well, I think it's appropriate that we started the gates of heaven and that we're going to close today with Heaven's Gate. It has been called the most controversial motion picture of its time 
It is the most talked about and written about film of the decade. Now, from the director of The Deer Hunter, United Artists presents Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate. The story of Jim Averill. He was born into the world of the rich and powerful, but his heart and dreams were with the people. Heaven's Gate. The story of a man's love for a woman, for a people, for a land, for a spirit that would never die. Chris Christopherson in Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate. Drew, how is it as a film? It's a hard film to discuss because I think there is genuine brilliance in some of what Cimino does in this film. There really is. When the movie came out, it was, uh, first of all, it was in theaters for about three days, and then the studio yanked it, and they started re-editing. The other film that we talked about that did that was Watcher in the Woods, and Watcher in the Woods didn't come back out for another year. Heaven's Gate, when they yanked it, it was a terrifying catastrophe for the studio because it was basically it was a four-hour-plus movie at that point. So they sent Chimino back to the editing room and basically said, you got to start over. It was destroyed by certain critics in New York. When it was finally released, it was just over two hours. So they cut almost two hours out of this film. Do I think either version works? Having seen different releases now and different versions of it and different cuts of it, I don't. I, I don't think Chimino's movie ever works. I understand why guys like FX Feeney, and it's it's interesting that bad timing would have bitten on this episode as well, because FX Feeney uh, was a L.A. critic who did a lot of work to renovate the opinion about Heaven's Gate, and he really went out of his way to, to recontextualize it as a great film that had a terrible release. And part of the way that happened was on the Z channel, which was a local cable channel here in Los Angeles. There's an amazing documentary about the Z channel that you can find, and there's a lot about Heaven's Gate, and there's a lot about bad timing in there. And these were movies that, because they were on the Z channel, and they were shown over and over in Los Angeles, the film industry internalized the notion that, no, these were misunderstood or these were treated poorly. And the rest of the country didn't really get that message. Z Channel was a local cable thing, and it was and it was really film nerdy. So this was one of those movies that I think benefited early on from the back and forth that happens. When something is attacked by critics, other critics inevitably will come and say, no, 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 you're being too hard on it. And then you'll get the backlash, and you'll get the re-backlash, and you'll get the re-re-backlash, and... I think Heaven's Gate has gone through more of that than almost any other film I can. Yeah. Make. Yeah. For those who aren't familiar, it's a uh, late era Western uh, in late uh, 1890s Wyoming, uh, the Johnson County War. It's so sprawling and so unfocused that the moments and there are several of poignancy and and uh, of, of emotional weight or just entertaining dialogue are quickly lost amidst tedium. A lot of people like to use pretentious, but, you know, pretentious, you know, implies that, you know, what the director's intent was that what they're and, and now they're faking it. But to me, it just reads as indulgent. It reads as uh, well, this is indulgence personified. Yeah. That's what Heaven's Gate is. It's a director madly in love with his own camera, his own dialogue and uh, unwilling to trim what could make a good film better. I have seen shorter versions of Heaven's Gate that work halfway decent but 
it's still just so much vague, ephemeral, forgettable. And that's the opposite of what he was going for. The stars of the film, Chris Christopherson, John Hurt, who we talked about last month in the terrific The Elephant Man, and Isabel Huppert. Christopher Walken is also a major star in this. Uh, this is Isabel Huppert at the very, very beginning of her career. Huppert these days is revered, and for good reason. She's she's turned into an amazing actress. You would never, ever know that based on the work she does in this film. Um, she's a blank. And that's the biggest problem is I think this was this is a example of a painting where you're supposed to do all the work for it. I don't think Chimino ever figured out how to shape any of this material. So what you get is this barrage of images and scenes and notions and ideas. And and some of them are beautiful and some of them are well shot and some of them are well put together. But I don't think he could tell you what this film is about. Not really. I don't think he could really tell you one focused idea that this movie represents. And it's interesting because it wasn't just a disaster. It was a, it was the end of the seventies. It was the end of that moment where directors who had earned a certain amount of cultural clout could cash that in by making movies that mattered to them, that were personal, that were about things that didn't necessarily look like commercial prospects up front. But this was it. This was the moment where look, if apocalypse now had turned out to be a disaster, then Apocalypse yeah. Now probably would have been this, this movie. This is the worst case scenario of Apocalypse Now, yeah. But here, you know what, Drew? Here's my question to you. Chimino deserves a lion's share of the quote-unquote credit for the, the disaster of this film, the financial disaster and critical. And what about the people who kept giving him just enough rope to hang himself? And here's the crazy thing is what we're talking about is a movie that costs $36 million. $36 million in 1980, yes, very expensive movie. Very, very, very expensive. We routinely now have horrifyingly bad filmmakers, horrifying, inept, absolutely incapable of communicating an idea or a theme or a real human emotion who are routinely now working with budgets of 150, 175, $200 million. So if you would compare, if you would compare Heaven's Gate's budget and you would extrapolate that to today's money, that would be like something on the level of collateral beauty, the recent Will Smith drama that died terribly. And that's not going to, and nor should it, that's not going to destroy any careers like, like Heaven's Gate did. I think it represented directorial freedom unfettered. And the studios, as much as anybody, the studios needed that era to end. They had to stop it. And so Heaven's Gate, even if it had mildly worked, I think Heaven's Gate was the line. I think it just was, it had clearly reached a point where directors had more power than the people actually greenlighting Here, films. Here's the most and important. that couldn't happen anymore. Uh, the, throughout the late 70s, especially, writer, director, producers were given a lot of free reign, and that led to a lot of uh, both over-budget productions and a lot of brilliant films. Heaven's Gate is known as a financial disaster and generally a critical failure. Do you think it's a terrible film? I don't think it's a terrible film. I think that's too harsh a word. Do I think it's a good film, though? No. I think it is a movie that that ultimately fails at the things that it's trying to do. If cinematography was enough to make a movie great, then this is a great movie because it is beautiful to look at. Several of the performances are really good. In isolated scenes, you know, that could be taken out, you think, God, this is the germs of a really interesting Western story. It really is. And then it just rambles on and on in really uninteresting directions. And you're like, you know, if you had had a firmer hand, 
behind the reins and said, nope, lose this, lose that. And you got a pretty decent story here. It's just so, uh, Chimino is just a little bit too in love with his own stuff. Yeah. It's not a film that I, I, I have much fondness for. And, and I, I would say I can't even go with you on the, I think it looks good. I, I think there's a lot of it. There's whole sequences in this film that are set in mud fights and, and dust clouds. There's a, a sequence in this film that, I mean, it's it feels like for 45 minutes we're in a dust cloud and you can't see fucking anything. I get it, but I don't like watching it and I don't think it works. And I, I find that we reward sometimes indulgence. This is a movie where I think the, the people that have really worked to renovate its its reputation, I, I think to some degree the emperor has at most he's in his briefs. And, and you know, another this is another movie in which Mickey Rourke pops up for a minute. Yeah, <laughs> he pops up in everything. Last month he, he popped up. It's crazy. All right, well that's November 1980. Again, we are sorry that it's a relatively sparse month, but this is, uh, I guess, what you'd call the beginning of the 1980 Oscar season. Uh, so you're not going to get as many genre films per se. You're going to get a little bit more dramatic stuff, and that's kind of what November had to offer. December is a much more colorful mixture of both. I'm so excited. I can't believe that we are. A, we're almost done with our first year because that feels to me like a real milestone. Like, this is going to work. We're actually going to do this podcast. We're going to be with you guys for the entire decade. That's exciting to me. But beyond that, December 1980, we get to talk about 9 to 5. Dabney Coleman is first rate. We get to talk about Raging Bull. We get to talk about Flash Gordon. We get to talk about Popeye. We get to talk about Altered States. We get to talk Ah. about the jazz singer. Yeah, yeah. A lot of these uh, movies are the reason that 1980 is, maybe not if the, is in my top three movie years of my lifetime. There's so many fun and and nostalgic movies that I saw in this year that I just love it. And uh, I'm glad that people like the podcast. Uh, Please spread the word and tune in uh, next episode. (laughs) 